Well, by the grace of God, we are just two verses away from the end of the of the the book of Acts, from this exposition that took us. Well, it, I would like to say it took us two years. It took us uh, round about three because we've made a few pauses in between. But after eighty. Uh, this is the 83rd sermon, or the 82nd sermon on the book of Acts. We're just about at the end. We still have a couple of more weeks, and I will want to use those two weeks um, to consider a more overview approach uh, to the whole of the book of Acts, and to see ourselves as well as a church, uh, as the people of God, uh, in, in the follow-up from Acts 28. <coughs> But that's for the week to come, uh, or the two weeks to come. With regard to our text today, I think it is important uh, for us to recapitulate a little bit, uh, just step a little bit back, understand where we are, and before we, we move forward, uh, we've seen, haven't we, that Paul was, uh, has been in prison for the better part of three years. He has, last week we saw that he finally arrived at Rome, a desire that he had... Uh, for maybe 10 years now, uh, he was hindered uh, before uh, to come, but now he has arrived in Rome, albeit in chains. It wasn't certainly the way that he had idealized his uh, ministry in Rome uh, to arrive there in chains. After imprisonments, persecutions, beatings, storms, shipwrecks, months uh, spent in Malta, uh, waiting for the winter to pass, he has now finally arrived at the capital of the empire. And we saw that in this final uh, stretch uh, towards Rome, he was greeted and encouraged uh, uh, and was thankful to God by this encouragement by, uh, by two uh, groups of Christians coming from Rome. The warmth and the love of the church, of the brethren, uh, filled his heart with thanksgiving and praise, and he drew much encouragement. Thank God he would be discouraged after all of this that had happened. But he was received affectionately, and as we saw last week, once he arrived at, at Rome, he, he settled in his accommodation, as we read in verse uh, 30, he, he rented his own house, uh, but he is in ho under house arrest, uh, but he called upon the Jews uh, of, the, of Rome to, to come and meet with them, and he explained what he, were, was, were his intentions with his coming to Rome, perhaps to settle uh, some concern in the, in the minds of the Jews. He told them that he meant no evil, Although he would and could certainly, uh, no, although he could certainly have uh, brought a lot of pain to the Jews for what their brethren had done uh, in Jerusalem, he didn't. They had nothing but love. That's precisely the reason why he was there in Rome. Not out of spite, not out of fame or desire, uh, uh, egotistical desires. He was there out of love. He had a burden to both Jews and Gentiles to witness of the hope of Israel, of Christ. And as we saw last week where we, st where, where we left off, the Jews um, in Rome 
they suggested that they should meet again, that they should hear a little bit more about this uh, or with a little bit more detail about this uh, sect, they called it, this uh, sect that is spoken against everywhere. And this, this is the, that meeting. We find from verse 23 to the end of, uh, to the verse 29, the account of this meeting. We don't know exactly why. Uh, they, they felt the need to uh, listen more. But surely curiosity, because by now word had traveled around. This is 20 years Chris, uh, since uh, Christ had uh, ascended. The, the, the Christian religion, the Christianity had spread abroad ever since the first persecution in Jerusalem where they were scattered around, as we have record in the, in the book of Acts. Certainly, word have, had already arrived in Rome because there were already Christians there. I must add this, because uh, incidentally, this is one of those things in, that is more prevalent in Roman Catholic countries. Uh, um, no mention is made here about Peter. No mention is made in the book of Acts, in the, the letter to the Romans, that Peter was the one that founded the church in Rome. In fact, it appears, implied, that Paul was the first apostle to, to get to Rome, although that might be disputed. But Peter was not the founder of the church in Rome. Paul writes a letter to the Romans. Uh, he wrote at the time of these events of, uh, of the book of Acts. He had written it uh, six years, seven years before. He, he didn't write uh, a single greeting to Peter, which would be very unusual if Peter was there, if Peter was the bishop of Rome, as Roman Catholics like to pass in their tradition. Uh, But they, the Jews knew about it. Jews knew about the, the, this sect, uh, which for all intents and purposes in this time it was uh, a Jewish sect in their minds because they, they held to the Old Testament uh, scripture. They, 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 they seemed to speak of the, uh, uh, they spoke of the, the of God of Abraham. So in their mind, it's a sect uh, uh, of Jewish uh, religion. And they wanted to hear more. And we are told that they met a few days later on a day that was chosen by the Jews, on the day that was uh, appointed him uh, by them. They came to his house. He was, they were received in the very house that, uh, where Paul was living. And we also read that the meeting was a very prolonged one. I'm sure there was a lot of things to discuss. It says there in, in verse um, 23 at the end that it was from morning till evening a good few hours of Paul explaining testifying exhorting uh, the Jews it was not a social gathering it was not a a, 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 a place uh, to, to debate uh, to exchange ideas this was an opportunity for Paul to explain His message. And we read there, don't we? I find this interesting. That there were, um, verse 
23, that many came to him. It was a great number of, of Jews. Rome uh, had by now been already uh, again, uh, uh, had already again received Jews coming from uh, after the Claudius expulsion. You remember this uh, if you've been coming to these series. Uh, back in, uh, in Acts, in the second missionary journey, Paul comes across Priscilla and Aquila, uh, and they are uh, there because they have been expelled. The, the whole Jew, uh, Jewish uh, ethnic, ethnicity had been expelled from Rome by Emperor Claudius in the year uh, 40, in the 40s. But now, uh, with Nero in power, it was restored, uh, the freedom to move, and, and you can see that there, the, the community returned, and they are there. But more interesting than, the, than the, them being there is the, the testimony of Paul. It, we read here that Paul explained. He solemnly testified of the kingdom, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. Notice what Paul does here. Paul is not just simply uh, presenting an essay, a lecture. He's preaching, he's explaining, he's witnessing, he's persuading. We all know these words by now. Uh, we're, if we've been coming to this, uh, to uh, attending these, in this series of sermons in, in the book of Acts, these words are used by Luke in very particular contexts of preaching, expounding, explaining, uh, elucidating, making things clear that perhaps are not so clear, making it, it to be understood. What God reveals in his word, Paul is trying to explain it. But also, it is testimony. Genuine preaching, preaching involves testimony. You don't want uh, uh, the one who, uh, if the one who speaks is not able to witness of the, the things that he is speaking, if he's not able to testify of the things he's speaking personally, uh, if it is a subject that does not concern him, that's not preaching. But there is in the case of Paul, and as there should be in the case of all of us, when we preach God's word, when we take the word of God into a, a dying, uh, needy uh, civilization uh, that is outside of this, these walls, we should understand that our own experience matters. It is a testimony. It's not just us uh, blurting out facts, explaining things in scripture. It's us saying I know this from personal experience. And Paul knew this. He was witnessing, testifying of his own, of the kingdom of God from his own experience. His own personal, it's not just theoretical, it, it is personal experience. And lastly, no, no preaching, no, no evangelizing is truly preaching or uh, if it's not if it doesn't have an element of persuasion. He persuaded them. He was exhorting them. That's the word here. Warning them, pleading with them, convincing them. Trying to sway them. That they uh, urge them and encourage them. 
That's Paul, uh, Luke's description of Paul's preaching. And I would suggest, and we'll speak a little bit more about this towards the end, I would suggest that these, this uh, way should be a, an example, a model for us of our own personal witness. If you're a Christian, you have, uh, you have one commission to take out, uh, to go out into the world and preach the word of God, to make disciples, to evangelize. And I would suggest that this is a perfect model of this. But then we can talk about the content. Not just the, the way, the model, uh, externally, but the content of the message. Of the preaching of Paul to the Jews. Look at what it says there. Two elements, one more general and one more particular. He testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them of concerning Jesus. It can be summarized, Paul's message, in fact, the whole of the gospel message can be summarized in these two things. It's the kingdom of God, and it's the preaching of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. That's the message of the gospel in a nutshell. What is the kingdom of God? It's interesting, you know, because the kingdom of God, as a term, in the Old Testament, is not a very prevalent term. It's not something that you read often. I think there's probably three, four occasions where uh, you hear of the kingdom of God. And yet you come to the New Testament, and immediately in the book, book of Matthew, Jesus preaches the kingdom of God. John the Baptist, before Jesus, is announcing the coming of the kingdom of God. And although the book of Acts doesn't use, uh, uh, there's probably three or four instances of uh, of language of the kingdom of God. They are in very interesting places and very uh, significant places. Uh, there is one right at the beginning. There is one in the, in the preaching of, of Philip to the eunuch. Uh, I think there is something there, but, but more than that, how is it that from the Old Testament to, to the New Testament, this, uh, this concept of the kingdom of God develops? Although in, in the Old Testament it was not prevalent. It might not have been prevalent, the kingdom of God as a concept. But the concept of God as king was everywhere. So every Jew, even though the Jews here listening to Paul might have uh, felt a little bit uh, uh, uneasy with the, with the language of the kingdom of God, they would understand what Paul was saying. Because they understood that God is king of, heavens, of the heavens and the earth. He is the king of his people in particular. But Paul's preaching of the kingdom of God goes a step further. They had an expectation that uh, a kingdom would be established on earth, that a descendant of David would come. That's the promise of the Messiah. That's the hope of Israel that Paul speaks so often. But here, Paul makes it clear, as often was the case in his preaching, and this again is a summary, this, this lasted from morning till evening, Paul uses this as an opportunity to tell him that the kingdom of God is not a political, earthly kingdom that the Jews might expect, but it was a spiritual kingdom. And then he goes to the specific, he goes to the specific of Christ, as the king, as the son of, a, uh, uh, of David, 
as the, the, the one who was promised to come. And he does this both from the prophets, from the law of Moses. And Paul again demonstrates that for him, he sought to know nothing. This was his recurring theme in preaching. Decided to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the message that Paul had to give to the Jews. That is the message that Paul had to give to the Gentiles. That's the message that saves even today. That God is king. That, he is, that the kingdom of God has come. And that God in, in the Son, in the person of the Son, has made a way available to all of those who would repent of their sins and turn from their wicked ways. And Paul does this. Again, remember, this is the first century. He doesn't have the New Testament. He has to go back to the Old Testament. The New Testament is not yet inscripturated. Some of these letters were already floating around. Romans, Galatians, some letters by Peter and John. Some of these things were already floating around. But all that Paul has as a source of uh, of unmistakable authority that he could take to the Jews was the, the Old Testament. And the Old Testament has the gospel present. The promise of a Messiah, the promise of the anointed one, the suffering servant in Isaiah who was to come and, and to, by, by his, uh, uh, by his uh, suffering was, was to atone for the sins of his people. We just read from Psalm 79, incidentally, where it speaks of God sending his atonement. That desire, that, that, that need. The deliverance that was the expectation of every faithful rem believer in the Old Testament. That deliverance, not, not just from the oppression of, of, of uh, political entities, whether they were the Babylons or, or the Egyptians or, or the Greeks or now the Romans. Not just that, that expectation, but the expectation of being delivered from the cruelty of, uh, and the, the, the oppression and the yoke of sin. That is the greatest of oppressions. And how did the, the, the Jews react to, all, to this message? We read, we hear it, we, we read there, don't we? It's exactly how people react in our own day. The message is preached, and some people believe, and some people reject. It's the same reaction that we have seen all throughout the study of the book of Acts. Some believe. Some are persuaded, some are convinced and convicted and converted. And yet, perhaps the greater majority, having their eyes closed and their hearts hardened, they reject, they push back, they, they persecute and oppress. You know what's often the case and is missing is indifference. And I truly believe this in, even in our day. That if the message is preached, people will not be indifferent. Either they will embrace it, 
because their eyes were opened by the Spirit, because their hearts were uh, softened by, by, the, by, the, by God, or they will reject it vehemently. And that is true of everyone when they hear the gospel. The reaction there was mixed. The reaction before then was mixed. The reaction today is mixed. Some respond positively. Some respond negatively. But all of, in all of it, the word of God goes out. It accomplished that for which it was sent forth. Paul says, for to some is an aroma of life unto life, and to others it's an aroma of death unto death. And Paul, being aware of this reaction, although I'm sure not, certainly not surprised uh, by it, he makes, the, the, this is our third point and last point, he makes a prophetic declaration. Motivated by the, the unbelief, And as he observes this disagreement, this sharp disagreement uh, that, that happened, this, this great dispute, as uh, Luke records it, Paul takes courage and with great boldness. Again, you need to remember the situation where Paul was in. Before we come to talk a little bit just briefly about uh, what he says, he takes boldness in a situation that most of us, we would just go, I really need to be wise in this, in this situation. Paul is uh, under house arrest, is shackled, is, is in chains, and he is uh, facing uh, uh, prosecution by, by, by Nero himself, by Caesar himself. The accusers are Jews. I think the best, the best way to get out of this situation would to be in the good graces of the Jews. Because they were the ones that brought this accusation, that leveled the accusation back in Jerusalem. And it would be very nice if the ones in, in, in Rome uh, would be on Paul's side. But Paul is not, about, is, is not going to compromise the message for expediency. So, so often, that is the temptation for us, is to uh, compromise for the sake of something that is not God-honoring. But not Paul. He takes courage, he is firm, he grounds himself in the word of God, and he says the following... Rightly, the Holy, uh, the Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah. Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and, and not perceive. And for the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Can you imagine the reaction of those who are, were rejecting the gospel? What are you saying to? Are, we, are you saying that we are like the unfaithful Israel Israelites in, in Isaiah's day? We're the ones who came out of it. They were idolaters. But Paul, Paul applies this text 
to his unbelieving listeners. And ultimately explaining that the reason for their unbelief is the hardness of their hearts. It's their inability to hear and understand, to see and perceive, to, to, uh, to believe in their hearts. That's why they didn't believe. You see, it's not, and this is important. I, I want to say a couple of things quickly here before we draw some conclusions. The problem, and this is important, I know we know this, but it is important for us to remember time and time again. The problem here was not that the gospel was deficient. See what Paul says. Paul is not saying, uh, Paul is not excusing them because uh, either the gospel was deficient or the, the preaching was not that good. Paul was the greatest preacher after our Lord Jesus Christ that ever walked this world. The problem was not a deficiency in the gospel or the preaching. Paul says the problem is with you. Because you don't want to hear. You don't want to see. And I find it interesting as well that Paul here, and again, this, this perhaps is an, an, a, 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 a slight of a tangent point to make at this point, uh, at this time, but, but it is important for us to note. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah. So who spoke? This is important to do with the inspiration of Scripture. Who is it that speaks in the Bible? For Paul, it's both the Holy Spirit and, the, and, the, and the, the human author. It's the Holy Spirit speaking through the human author. Because in Isaiah, if you would turn there, this is in Isaiah 9, in that very, uh, in that very famous passage. Um, if you, it's not clear that's the Holy Spirit speaking. Nothing is said there. But for Paul, anything in Scripture is the Holy Spirit speaking through the author. And another point, incidentally, as well, this idea that uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and Unitarians have that the Holy Spirit is some kind of just a, 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 a force, a, an energy, as they say. Energy doesn't speak, does it? The Holy Spirit spoke. The third person of the Trinity spoke. Jehovah himself spoke. Through Isaiah, yes, but he spoke nonetheless. And the Spirit has been speaking through his words. All of scripture is inspired. But again, before we close, how bold and courageous was Paul? Not knowing what awaited him. He was not concerned to enlist the sympathy. He was not concerned to, 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 to be pitied. How, he, how well would he, he could have done if he, if he had enlisted the pity and the, and the sympathy of the Jews at that time? 
get them to plead their, his case before, the, before the, the Roman tribunal. But no. Paul turns to them and he says, you stop your ears, it's because of your lack of understanding. And again, just so we're clear, all of Calvinism and, and the, the hardness of heart and the work of the Spirit, Paul doesn't excuse them, does he? It's their fault. It's their fault. They're the ones who, who although the light is shining, they don't want to see Although the, the, the sound is coming, they'd stop their ears. And he turns to them and says, I'll go to the Gentiles. They will hear it. They know, he know, Paul knows that they've been hearing it. And Paul is assured and he's confident that they will continue to hear it. You closed your ears. You, 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 you stopped your ears, you closed your eyes, I'm going to go elsewhere. They will hear it. And brothers and sisters, the reality is, is that they heard it. Because otherwise we wouldn't be here. This is not a fiction. I don't have time, and I probably will do this in the, coming two, in the next two weeks. But this is not a fiction. There is enough in the, in, in the book uh, of Acts to prove that this is actual historical record. This happened. And because this happened, we are standing here today. There's this, uh, used to be a, a ministry called Acts 29. The, the whole point of the ministry, I'm just, I just like the title of, or the name of the ministry, Acts 29. The whole point is that we are the, the, the ones that follow from Acts 28. The story as we'll see next week, doesn't end. The story finishes there. The record needs to stop at some point, but the reality is that the, that record is being written today. In the courts of heaven, that record is being written today, and, and today is being said. And the question is, what is it being said about this meeting place here today, about this conversation? Is it that we heard that our eyes were open, that our hearts were eager, that we were crying out to God, speak, tell us, we want to hear. Or is the record a somber one of those who stop their ears, of those who close their eyes, of those who had hardened hearts that were unwilling to budge? What will be said? But the reality is, they heard in Rome. They heard throughout the whole of the empire. And the message has carried on being heard till this day. And until the Lord returns, the message will be heard. And just quickly, and I'll, I'll be brief here, because I've already sort of alluded to all of these uh, as I've been going through the passage. Number one uh, important lesson for us is the nature of gospel preaching. True preaching is not intended to entertain. I'm not here to entertain, to, to, uh, to display, to uh, awe you with, with some uh, very bad oratory. But I'm not here to, to impress, to lecture, or to this discourse. True preaching 
as we preach uh, in the world as well, as we go out in, uh, into the, to the streets, is not meant to be a, a sociological or a psychological or a, a philosophical discourse. It's the exposition of God's word, the explaining, the testifying, and it's the, the urging, exhorting. That's what preaching is. We also learned, didn't we, about the content. Honestly, so, so often. I'm wondering if I, how to express this. So often you hear street preachers. And I, I, I respect and I admire. Uh, I think it takes great bravery. This is easy. Preaching in a, in a, in a building, uh, in the safety of these four walls. No one's going to uh, heckle me. Uh, I admire and I, I, I look up to. But so often, so often you, you, you come across some who are majoring on minors and neglecting the majors in street preaching or in the point of preaching the gospel is not moralistic the gospel will transform our morals if you're saved your way of interacting with the world your way of seeing the world will change that's not preaching to tell people what to do in moral terms, a rule of a set of rules of conduct to follow. Preaching to an unbelieving generation is repent and believe. Turn from your wicked ways. Trust in Christ. The second lesson that we can take from this teaches us something that we already know: that the Word of God attests but that nonetheless surprises us every single time. It's the hardness of the human heart. Why is it that I believe, but my, my sister, my brother in the, blood, in the flesh, or my mother, my father, my friend, my coworker, why is it that I see it so clearly? And this person who heard exactly the same message remains unmoved. I think it was William Wilberforce once took a, a, an MP friend of his, I forgot the name, I could have checked, uh, to, a, to, a very, uh, to a service where they heard a very moving sermon. Uh, well, at least according to Wilberforce, it was a very moving sermon. And this other friend, who was self-professed a Christian, this is the time where everyone was a Christian uh, by, by nature of being born in, uh, they believed themselves to be Christians, um, he felt very bored by it. And uh, why is it that some people uh, receive the word gladly and others, it just doesn't do anything? Why is it that people can come Sunday after Sunday, year after year to church and yet remain untransformed and unconverted and unchanged? It's because of the hardness of heart. And Paul was preaching the gospel to a, a very hardened generation. 
And we are given the, a task that is very similar. We are to take the gospel to a very hardened generation. And let's be honest, unless the Lord moves, unless the Lord sends revival, both to the church and by, by, uh, by, by influence then to the rest of the land, most of our ministry is going to be a ministry very much similar to Paul in this conversation in Rome. Some will believe, but honestly, a great many deal will, will disbelieve. So what are we to do? Are we to stop preaching? Are we to stop exhorting, urging, testifying, explaining? No, we are to continue. How, no matter how difficult the circumstances, we must be obedient to the, co the Great Commission. Our calling, brothers and sisters, is not to be fruitful in terms of conversions. None of us will be judged, uh, will have to give an account for the number of conversions that we had but we'll have to give an account for the, our faithfulness to God. We are to preach faithfully, boldly. And that's what we learn. I, I, won't go, I had a, a list of, of points here. I won't go through them. I'll, I'll probably leave this to, to, for next week. But we are to learn from the model uh, of Paul what it means to be effective in our evangelism. Preach anytime, anywhere, in all circumstances. Paul preached when he was free, he preached when he was arrested, he preached in his home, he preached, he preached in any circumstance. He preached lovingly, in spite of all that was done to him. Why? Because he loved God and he loved uh, dying souls. Perhaps the third, the third and last lesson is the most important. If the hearts are hardened, why preach? Well, because that's when you see the work of God truly move. Because there is when you see the sovereignty of God at work. Some people criticize, don't they? John Wesley famously uh, was perhaps one of the first few one of the, the most famous doing this, he, he criti criticized uh, monergism, Calvinism. He criticized uh, George Whitfield because of his Calvinism, because he believed, he dared to believe what Scripture says, that unless God works in the heart, no one will believe. That unless God has chosen uh, to, to touch your heart and, and soften it, no one will believe. John Wesley dared to believe, uh, to, to criticize. And the criticism has been uh, lobbed at, uh, at those who hold to the sovereignty of God uh, in Scripture. It's been lobbed. Why evangelize then? Why is it that, that you go out? If, if they are going to resist, if their hearts are hardened, if they are dead in their sins and trespasses, why go out? Well, ask that to Ezekiel when he stood before the valley of dry bones. Why speak to the bones? Well, because God said so. Because God said that he will 
break the hard and stony ground. He will transform. And, and because he has said that he will do that, I have confidence. Because if it was left to me, to my uh, uh, capacity to persuade, if it was left to you, to your capacity of being persuasive, no one would be saved. But because it's a work of the Spirit, because God has promised us that he will save those he chose from before time began, that those uh, that he will draw them in, because he has assured us that his work will be effectual and irresistible. We preach, not knowing who will hear, not knowing if the person who is going to hear us will be transformed or not, but we preach indiscriminately. We offer salvation freely because we are assured that God will work. And that is our encouragement. G.I. Packer famously said that far from uh, dissuading us from, from evangelizing, believing in the sovereignty of God in evangelism is the only thing that actually pulls us forward to evangelize. Because none of us can, but Christ can. The Holy Spirit can. God can save and reach the worst of sinners. He can open their eyes. He can, he can unstop their ears. He can break the stony ground of their hearts. And he can heal. He does heal. He, he healed us, didn't he? Our ears were stopped. Our hearts were, 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 were hardened. Our, 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 our eyes were, although the light would shine in them, our pupils were closed. But then comes the word, the message preached by, by God's instrument on a pulpit or on a street or on a leaflet, wherever it was that God used for you or for me. The word came. And all of a sudden, light those healing words of the gospel take heart. Your sins are forgiven. And all of a sudden, it wasn't just a word coming out of the mouth of a preacher in the pulpit or, or a, a friend reading to you uh, from the Bible or you reading your Bible at home. All of a sudden, it wasn't just fiction. When, it's, when you hear those words, take heart, your sins are forgiven. You say, my sins are forgiven. When you hear the words, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Either it's not just theory that applies to those or, or something you heard said. It brings peace. It brings joy and assurance to your heart. There is no condemnation for me. No matter what's going on. No matter being shackled into this, in, in, in this in domestic uh, prison. There is no condemnation. Brothers and sisters, we are, as Paul said, I believe, to the, Th uh, to the Thessalonians, to the Philippians as well. We are the, the bearers of the message. We are the witness of those things that God has done in the past and recorded for us in Scripture and done in our lives. And we are to take the healing power of the gospel to this world. And we are to proclaim it boldly. As it was proclaimed in the past, we should proclaim it in our own day.
and tell the people, even though their hearts, uh, eyes are, are closed, uh, or their ears are stopped and their hearts are hardened, tell that people that you will perish. Not because, not, and when you do so, it's not because you never heard. It is because you will, you were unwilling to hear. Because the light was shining and you closed your eyelids. Because the, the voice was speaking and you stopped your ears. Because the message was gripping you and you chose to pay attention to something else. You're, you're without excuse. As Paul said to, the, to those, or as Paul referred to those who hear and refuse. See and refuse to see. You have no excuse. May the Holy Spirit convict us of these words. And may the healing words of the gospel continue to heal us and others in our in our district, in our city, in this nation.